Prepping for our VBACs often brings more prep for the birth than postpartum, but it is important to prep for the next chapter as well. I know, it's a lot. If you have ever found yourself wondering what pump you should get for your postpartum experience, or maybe if you should get one at all, check out our friends over at the Lactation Network. They have an easy and free three-step question quiz that can help narrow down what pumps may be best for you and even check to see which ones will be covered by your insurance. Whether you're wanting to pump occasionally or exclusively, sitting down or on the go like I did, they've got you covered. Check them out at tln.care slash feedback. Again, that is tln.care slash feedback. Or check out the link in the show notes. So we have our friend Annika. To, Annika, I keep saying like, am I questioning that? But it's Annika. Yeah. Right, Annika. Okay. <laughs> we have our friend Annika and she has had three cesareans. And her cesareans, they really all have been, I mean, a little bit different, right? Like for different reasons, Annika. And so we've got IVF, we've got low fluid, and we have breach presentation. So I'm excited to share your stories or have you share your stories today. But as always, we love starting our podcast out with a review. And today's reviewer is from a girl named Megan. And it says, great resource. It says, such a great resource for VBAC mamas to come and listen to women's stories and get great evidence-based practice information. I do wish these ladies would do a little less interrupting of the storytellers. Well, I'm so sorry, Megan. We definitely do jump in. So hopefully, Annika, you don't feel too interrupted. (laughs) But we do like to be a part of your story as well because... It, I mean, we want you to share your story, but we are listening and we are listening for the first time and we're reacting as though someone would else would react as the first time they're listening, right? Um, so yeah, so thank you, Megan, for your review. We do love your reviews as always. Seriously, anywhere you listen, Apple Podcasts, Google, you can email us, write us on Instagram. Let us know what your review is because we would love to read it on the next podcast. You are tuned into the VBAC Link Podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay, Miss Annika. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for being here and sharing these stories. I just want to turn the time over to you and... Have you share away and educate these listeners? Awesome. Well, I um, I am a longtime listener of your podcast. Actually, I think I found your podcast before I gave birth to my first child. Oh, and really? I, yeah. And I was doing like five hour drives because I, so I'm a public oh. floor physical therapist. And oh, I, yes. I wanted to talk about that too, yeah. by the way. Yeah. The end, so- don't let me forget. Well, I was contracted to work where I'm actually working now. So it was like a five and a half hour drive. And um, I would go down once a month and treat patients. And so I would like listen to five and a half hours of your podcast. (laughs) 
So, so you would I, get through quite a few episodes. Yeah, lots of episodes. And so I always had this dream that I would be able to come on the VBAC link with this triumphant, like VBAC, mm-hmm. with this triumphant story. I mean, I never expected to have a cesarean. I don't think anybody ever does. But I, after I had my first, I was like, okay, like my goal is to someday be on the VBAC link with this triumphant story. And yeah. I, I'm not here today with the triumphant fragile VBAC. Yeah. yeah that I was hoping for, but I really think that my births tell three stories and the first one's about advocacy. And then the second one's about trust. And then the third one's about defining success. Yes. Oh, that just gave me the chills. Yeah. I that really yeah. did. I so will, let's you know, talk about this. I, so my first, my first pregnancy started um, after about three and a half years of infertility. We went all the way through to IVF. And I've been like having some mental health struggles, like getting through all of the infertility pieces. And so I'd been doing counseling and that was amazingly helpful. And so we get into the pregnancy, everything's going beautifully. And then at about 18 weeks, I had some really bad swelling. And so I told my provider and he was like, well, sorry, like sometimes people just get swelling. So, you know, I just went with that. And a friend of mine who's a pelvic floor PT, I was seeing her because I I was doing all the things. I had like prenatal yoga and I um, was seeing a pelvic floor therapist because I'd had some like pelvic, like pelvic pain and pelvic tension in the past. And so she took my blood pressure one day and it had always been normal in the OB's office. And she was like, wow, you're like a little elevated. So... Mm that was like in August. So like about 20 weeks probably, and baby looks fine and he's growing just fine. And I'm just continuing to like get more and more swelling. And they were like, Mm. well, shucks. And I probably went into OB triage three times because I had like systolic pressures, like above 150. Um, Yeah. And they, the third time I went in, they said, stop taking your blood pressure, stop coming in. You're fine. Did you have protein at all? No. So everything was always really clear. So, so, I mean, I, you know, I was peeing in a cup every time I went into the, to my OB's office and they would take my blood pressure and they said, you're fine. So I went in like sometime in October to get my flu shot. And they said, they said, Oh, you're, you know, your diastolic. So the bottom number is a little high. And so I had an OB visit like two days later and they said, we'll just let him know. So he put me on metoprolol, like a blood pressure, like a beta blocker blood pressure medication um, and had me start tracking my blood pressure, which was like kind of validating because I had been trying to tell them for weeks that my blood right. pressure was high. So I'm tracking it and the, and the metoprolol is like working pretty, it's working okay. Like my blood pressure is elevated, but it's not scary. And so I went to my 32 week visit and um, I actually did have a little bit of protein in my urine at that visit. And so, so we were living in Salem, which is the capital of Oregon. And so it's a big city and like the big research hospital is like only an hour away. Like it's really close. And so they went and sent me for blood work um, after I had some protein in my urine and they called me later that day and said, Hey, you know, your numbers are borderline. So we want you to come in and get these injections. And nobody had talked to me about preeclampsia. Nobody had talked to me about like, Mm -hmm. Hey, we're concerned about this. They were just like, well, you know, you're probably going to look at like an induction at 37 weeks. So they said, you're borderline. We need you to come in for these shots. And I was heading down to Lakeview where I live now to, to do some contract work. And I said, well, I'm going out of town this weekend. Can it wait? Can it wait until next week? Cause I could come tomorrow, but I can't get that. Cause those, the shots are supposed to be 24 hours apart. And it's yeah. too much serious. And so, um, 
they said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Which I like now looking back, like in a movie, that's where they would play like the dun, dun, dun. Because they sent me five and a half hours away to rural Oregon, where the only hospital there is a critical access hospital that does not have a NICU. It does not have Mm on-call anesthesia. It has nothing. And so, although now having been here, it has a lot more than what we think. But anyway... So I, I go down and I work that day and I woke up the next morning and had all the big fancy symptoms. I bet I had gained 20 pounds overnight. Like oh, I, man. Uh, my blood pressure was 180 over 125. And like my, I came down and like my mom and my husband were just like staring at me because I was so swollen. Just didn't look good. Yeah. And so because of the attitude I'd gotten from triage, like my husband had me call triage up in Salem and they said, you need to go on right away. And so, you know, but they'd sent me home so many times before. So I was like, well, I have a hair appointment. So I'm going to go to my hair appointment. (laughs) So my hair looked awesome. Oh my gosh. And I walked into the local ER here and this is where I grew up. And so I knew everybody working and they didn't recognize me because I was so swan. And so I had, I had gone from like borderline preeclamptic on Wednesday to by Saturday morning, severely preeclamptic. So I ended up being life flighted out to Salem. Oh my gosh. Um, the OB that was here that, or the ER doc that was here said, you know, if you were one week farther along, like I would deliver you. So I was only 33 weeks mm-hmm. at that point. So they got me up to Salem and they, they were able to stabilize me. Um, and they said, okay, we're just going to go week by week. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and we're going to try to hold you off at 34 and then 35 and, and get you as close as we can. And so so Saturday went by, everything was looking better. Sunday, you know, our game plan was to wait. And then by Sunday evening, I had stopped peeing and I was drinking tons of fluid. And, and that was actually the first time, I mean, I'm a medical provider and that was like the first time that I was like, okay, something is wrong. Yeah. Like my body's um, not happy right now. Yeah. And I, so, you know, the nurse was like, okay, come on, like, let's just go pee. And I was like, dude, like there's nothing in there. <laughs> and so you know, lo and behold, like I had, I had kicked over to like near eclampsia. So they like worked for a couple hours to try to get it down, like blood pressure down, like and stabilize me, wouldn't mm-hmm. stabilize. And then she, the OB who was at the hospital in Salem came in and said, you know, I think we're going to induce you tonight and you're going to have 36 hours to deliver or we're going to take you to C-section. And that was really scary for me. Yeah. Um, I had a doula, I had a doula team that I loved and, but my whole birth plan was like movement and I really wanted to go medication free, but they said, look, no, you're, we're going to induce you like cytotec, Pitocin, and you're going to be in bed. And so I got really scared and you talked to my doula and my husband and then the OB came back in, I don't know, probably an hour later and said, nope, actually, we're just going to take you to C-section and then like basically turned around and walked off. And gosh, the poor nurse, like I remember it like just bursting into tears. And because even though I was scared of not moving, I really didn't want a C-section. And um, that actually, so he was, my son was born like the next morning um, at like 3 a.m. And they, you know, whisked him, whisked him straight to the NICU. And then because of all the magnesium they had me on, I didn't hold him. So that was Monday morning. Mm-hmm. I probably didn't hold him until Tuesday afternoon. I got to see him briefly, but I, one of the things that stands out to me the most is being in the PACU, the recovery from surgery. And the doc stayed with me for about two and a half hours. And now Mm -hmm. 
looking back, like docs don't stay with you, you know, like they're, they're very worried about you if they are like by your bedside for two and a half hours. And so it was, you know, and we were really lucky. Like we had a very like short NICU stay. We had a wonderful NICU team. My recovery was pretty, my recovery was rough, but, um, you know, as soon as like I gave birth, like the preeclampsia started to fade and I'd like lost all that water and I felt actually a lot better, but I walked out of the hospital 10 days later with my baby and looked at my husband and said, next time I'm doing a vaginal birth. And he was, he was like, can we pump the brakes for a minute? Um, like maybe you know, let's not, just, let's not even talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was so committed. And so I found like over the next year, I mean, I had really severe postpartum anxiety like that I probably should have been treated for because if anyone's come out of the NICU, I mean, you come out on this gruesome schedule of like waking your baby up and pumping and feeding. So for about six weeks, I like just didn't sleep and had really severe postpartum anxiety. And, and I should have been treated probably, but you know, you're not really in the headspace to think about that. But I remember like, thank God for my mom and my husband, because I remember like screaming at my mom about like washing the bottles incorrectly. <laughs> like, thank goodness my mom loves me because she was like, okay. And just, yeah. And just supported me. But those uh, are actually signs um, yeah. of postpartum anxiety where you're like, yeah. things have to be just so, or you're really right. nervous about a binky falling on the ground or right. yeah. Like those, it, it seems super irrational right. to other people, but right. it is so real to oh. the person going through it. And I think it just speaks to like the lack of postpartum care that we have. I mean, like they, yep. they discharged me. I mean, I, I, was like I found out about five years later that I almost died that night, and they like the cesarean was life saving. Like that was absolutely yeah. what I needed, and they discharged me five days later with just like, all right, we'll see you in six weeks. And then right. at six weeks, they were like, well, back in the saddle, Sally. And I, you know, yeah. so there was no coverage there, like no coverage of of Follow care ups. for me. Yeah, yeah. I know. And so um, we're going wrong. Right. They're going wrong in the postpartum area in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast episode is brought to you by the Lactation Network, or as we call them, TLN. I have three babies and three different breastfeeding experiences. After I got quote unquote mastered with my first daughter, I never thought about breastfeeding being difficult again. But when my second daughter was born, she was more than a pound smaller, developed torticollis from birth. And I found myself feeling stuck yet again, wondering who I could call and get help from. My babies like to come on the weekends, so once again, I didn't have an IBCLC available. So I reached out to one locally. She was amazing, but man, she was super spendy. I told my husband it was so worth it, but I didn't understand why IBCLCs were not covered by insurance. After all, we are feeding humans. I'm pretty sure that's a big deal. Well, guess what? Because of TLN, you can get breastfeeding help by IBCLCs and have it covered by your insurance. It's amazing. And I truly feel like the whole birth world needs to know it. I honestly suggest all expecting parents plan ahead if possible. Get a free consultation today at tln.care slash VBAC. Or you can click the link in the show notes. So, 
so I had a, I had quite a bit of like trauma and nervousness. It was probably like six or seven months before I finally like, came out of that postpartum anxiety, probably a year before I felt like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so after about a year, I mean, I think just like everybody, you're like, okay, I can do this again, you know? And I started to get in shape and started to exercise again. And then I had this weird episode of bleeding and I thought like, oh, it's just my period coming back and being stupid. It actually ended up being a miscarriage. Oh. And I had never gotten pregnant before. So it was this, I'd never gotten pregnant on my own before. So it was kind of this weird, like happy, sad experience. Um, yeah. And then fortunately, we were able to naturally conceive my second child, my daughter, my first daughter, about two months later. Mm, that's um, awesome. And, yeah, it was amazing. And I was so grateful and but I felt, I found like immediately I had this focus on wanting this vaginal birth. And I felt very fortunate because the other podcast that I listened to all throughout my pregnancy was one by Parijat Deshpande. Um, she had a podcast called, she has a podcast had, I guess she doesn't record for it anymore, but um, called Delivering Miracles. Okay. And so it was all about like high risk pregnancy and, and actually like like doing everything you can to reduce your risks of having a high risk pregnancy and then also recovering. So, and I think I emailed like her office person like every week for like a year because I really wanted to work with her. And so I finally, I was able to get in with her like right around the time we found out we were pregnant. And so she does a lot of like, um, like trauma relief work. So it's a lot less of like talking out your issues and more like using movements and visualizations to help bring down your sympathetic, like fight and flight nervous system. Mm. Um, so I worked with her throughout my entire pregnancy. And I mean, I felt like a rock star, like there was no swelling. I, and I guess in the meantime, the other part of the story is we had moved down to Lakeview. So the really rural critical access hospital place, we'd moved down here in between my first and second child. And there's no VBACs here. So the closest place is about three and a half hours away for a supportive VBAC provider. It's a long drive. It's a long drive. And we actually made the decision that we were going to go back to Salem to do a VBAC. And I love my provider down here. I actually went with the guy who admitted me to the ER the day I had preeclampsia. He was a totally different personality than I thought was going to be a good fit for me. But I just recognized... He was very... When he admitted me that day in the ER, he explained exactly what was happening to me. And he explained why he wanted to do the things he wanted to do. Because I fought being flown. And he explained like, look, you could have a seizure, you could have a stroke. And like, like your life, like this is my very strong recommendation. Like this is not a prison, but this is a strong recommendation. Right. And, um, and I just really liked that approach. And so I felt like I had a lot of trust there and he had saved my life. I mean, it sounds dramatic, but he had saved my life once. And so right. I went with him again and he was very supportive of like figuring out how to make the VBAC work and, you know, when to go and how to transition. But he was also, he was also like had a backup plan for a cesarean just in case. Mm-hmm. And so about 28 weeks, he like, they always do like a little ultrasound um, at the visits and she was breached. And so but everything else looked fine. And he was like, oh, you have plenty of time. And so, you know, the weeks go on and she continues to be breached. And so he's in the back of his head thinking like, okay, we need to like probably start looking at the calendar and thinking about dates. And I am just like in denial that it is going to happen. I was like, it's going to happen. You know, like all of the stories on the VBAC link, like you will it, you positive think, you do the stretches and the walking and the whatever, and they're going to turn. Like baby is going to turn. 
So we get to 34 weeks and he said, you know, let's just do, let's just check you on ultrasound. I just want to make sure because my placenta had been anterior. So he's Um, like, I just want to make sure that your placenta is off your scar in the, in the case that we have to do a cesarean. Mm-hmm. And we were excited because, of course, it's a really small town here. Um, Lakeview, so Lakeview is where I live, and it is a town of about two thousand people and a county of about seven thousand. Wow. Um, so you literally know everybody, <laughs> and uh, and we're about a hundred miles from the closest next hospital. So we're very rural, and so we know the ultrasound tech, of course. And she's like, "Oh, we're going to do three D." So we walked in, being very excited, and she did the biophysical profile and I had a, I had a fluid level that day of my AFI was a 4.1. Oh, and what week is this? 34. 34. That's low. That's low. And she, she was like, you're not leaving today. And I was like, what? So thank God I was working with Parijat Deshpande. And so we immediately like kick into like all of the things to help keep my like anxiety low, to help keep it all out of my body. And we, we were tracking. So now I'm doing like biophysical profiles, like every, I think we started with like every other day and my fluid numbers started to come back up. So our docs here consult with maternal fetal medicine out of um, a town about three and a half hours away. And um, they said, okay, as long as you're trending upward, like you're fine. But at that Mm -hmm. point, we kind of knew that a VBAC was off the table because with that low of fluid, like babies were really unlikely to turn. So I just, I kind of said at that point, I was like, okay, like, let's just keep her healthy, you know, like whatever we need, whatever we got to do. So we're, you know, we're chugging along. And then at about 35 weeks and a couple of days, my fluid level got all the way down to 2.1. So it had like come up and then it started to come way back down. And the earliest that our hospital can deliver babies is 36 weeks. And so we got leak out. I'm a week out. Yep. And so, so I would, oh my gosh, with, there's all this like lore about like low amniotic fluid. And so I was, I mean, I was probably drinking close to two gallons of water a day, which there's no direct correlation. There, there is a correlation with hydration and low fluid, but not like pathologically low fluid, but there's all this lore. And so I was drinking close to like two gallons of water a day. And then also drinking these uh, buttermilk and blueberry smoothies it was like a, oh. old, yeah, it was like a, like an Indian culture thing to like have buttermilk to help with fluids. They're actually like weirdly good, but I was drinking one of those every day. Interesting. <laughs> I've never even heard of that. Yeah. I'll, I mean, all of the Google things, right? Like we were just doing all of the Google things. Mm-hmm. And so we made it to, so when I was 36 weeks, like both my OB and I like breathed a sigh of relief. We're like, okay, we made it, you know, like, okay, so here we go. Now we're going to keep tracking her to 37, you know, and get to term or early, you know, early term or late preterm. And the MFM was like, nope, just go for it. And so we ended up delivering her at 36 and one via cesarean. And I, what was so wonderful about that birth is because of my work with Parijat and really kind of like, like trusting in the medical team that was around me. I felt like, like that birth was not traumatic. Like it was scary and we were worried, but I like, I mean, she came out of me and just started screaming right away. And I was able to breastfeed and like, she came right to me in the OR and we breastfed in the OR 
And I mean, the one nice thing about having a cesarean is that spinal takes a long time to wear off when you have a catheter. So I think I did skin to skin for like six hours. Like my husband did not hold her for six hours because I just, that was one of the things I had that I, that really left me with some trauma from my son. Um, And so I just like, remember these like goldeny, like autumn afternoons and I, she's just on my chest and I just couldn't have been happier. Um, even though it wasn't the VBAC and it was preterm, it was still like, I just had this team, this incredible team around me that gave me the ultimately gave me the experience I wanted, even though it wasn't the method. Right. And that is something that I feel like is so important to touch on because sometimes we hear cesarean stories, right? right? And we hear trauma, right? scary, traumatic. And I don't want to say that cesareans can't be scary or traumatic or they're not, right? but they don't always have to be, right? right. Like they actually can be very healing right. and redemptive. Right. Like, you know, you might think, uh, like, oh, you would have, you didn't get a redemption birth because you didn't have a VBAC, but there were a lot of really amazing, beautiful wins right. that were very redemptive in her birth, right? Right. right. I mean, that skin to skin and being involved and like having such a team be so supportive around the whole thing and like trying to get you there, like motivating. Okay. We're going to get to 36 weeks. So we're going to have, baby, right. you know, all these things really awesome stuff. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was incredible. And we, you know, it was, we've had two births now that were, you know, the first one was very scary. The second one was very scary. And we almost stopped having kids. Like I had this dream of having four children and my, my husband's like, well, I wanted two, you wanted four. So we um, compromised at four kids. Like that's Mm -hmm. what he says now. But at the time he was like, no, like I can't go through this again. And so And I was actually kind of along, especially for that first year, like I was kind of along the same path. Like I, you know, like we'd had, like, I felt so grateful to have, like you said, have gotten a positive experience. Like everybody was healthy. My, like our family was wonderful. And about a year out from her birth, maybe seven or eight months out from her birth, um, I really started feeling like I wanted to pursue our dream of having four kids. And my husband really struggled with that. And so he and I both went to counseling. Like we went separately to counseling because we both had a lot of trauma, trauma. just actually, actually left over from the first birth, like my yeah. son's birth. And so both of us, he did some like EMDR work, mm-hmm. uh, which was really powerful. And I just did like some talk therapy, which was really good. And ultimately we decided that we wanted to, to have a third baby and then, you know, eventually go on for a fourth. And so it took us a little bit longer to get pregnant. And in that time, I found out that in my first birth, I was like, so, so, you know, they were tracking my labs and one of the, Mm -hmm. one of the things they track is sodium. And so that fluid imbalance, right? Like sodium is a very important, you know, like lab value that we Mm -hmm. need. And I, you know, I was digging through like pages and pages and pages of notes trying to figure out like, why did they never even give me a chance? You know, like I still, because even though my second daughter or my daughter's birth was very redemptive, like I still had this fire in me for wanting to know what a contraction felt like. Yeah. And I, and in the meantime, I've developed this pelvic floor and like OB program at our little local hospital here. And I'm a childbirth educator and I'm just like touting the virtues of vaginal birth. Right. Um, And, you know, and, and feeling like we've totally over-medicalized birth. 
so I'm, so I'm digging through all my notes and I find that my sodium had been trending like over the 12 hours, the 12 hours before even I realized that I wasn't peeing, my sodium had been trending down. And I was about three, by the time they made the call to go to C-section, I was like three data points away from being like a 50-50 survival. Like my sodium had gotten so low that I was, I was, I was, I didn't have 36 hours to try to labor. Oh and that kind of is can't, when sodium gets really, really, really low, can't you actually have a stroke? Yeah. Yeah. So that, and, like, it, and it's like, like a, and like a major stroke. It can be, yeah. Like 50, yeah. 50, like coin flip on survival. Yeah. And so I, it actually gave me a lot of closure to see that. Like, I wish that they had explained it to me like that in the moment, yeah. but it, it was like, okay, like that was the right call, you know? And yeah. I hate it's it. Validation. When, Right. And I hate it when like, like you're given platitudes about like, well, you know, healthy mom, healthy baby. It's like, well, obviously, you know, like I wouldn't wish for something different, but you know, there's, there's also an experience I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Uh, So rolling into our third pregnancy, you know, shoot, being pregnant with two kids is like no joke. (laughs) So, so I kind of had a hard, a harder pregnancy and we were able to conceive naturally again. Um, yeah. And so this time we started, we started with maternal fetal medicine. They were tracking us from 16 weeks on and I like had monthly visits with them all the way up to 36 weeks. And so again, we get to, everything's going swimmingly. She looks lovely. My fluid is great. My blood pressure is low and we get to 28 weeks and she's breech. Hmm. And so I am a varsity along with being a pelvic floor PT and a mom of two at the time, I'm a varsity volleyball coach and my husband's a wildland firefighter. And if you haven't been out West for the last couple of years, it's been insane. (laughs) And so, or I guess even living under a rock because I think it's made national news. And so this is during the summer rolling into volleyball season. I've got a breech baby. I've got like this whole plan for yeah. And I've got this whole plan for a VBAC. We're going to drive three. And, I'm going to go into labor. We're going to drive three and a half hours. I'm going to labor in the car with my husband driving like a grandma. Like it's going to like, we're going to do this. And I, I mean, I was back to like every, like every day listening to a VBAC link podcast and just willing it into being. And I hit about 33 weeks and she's, you know, and I'm doing like uterine ligament mobilizations on myself. I'm, I yeah. bought a spinning babies class and was doing like mm-hmm. close to two hours of exercises a day wow. to try to like, you know, inversions and sideline and all the mm-hmm. like rebozo sifting. And at about 33 weeks, a friend of mine tells me about this postural restoration physical therapist over in Grants Pass, which is about four hours away from here. And I went, um, I got an appointment mm-hmm. with her and drove four hours one way to go see her. I got in with an acupuncturist and I, I mean, we did, we did all the things, um, literally, and yeah. literally all the things. And a little after labor day, you know, my husband was like home on like, so firefighters work for like two to three weeks on and then they get two to three days off. And then usually, I mean, in a busy fire season, we'll like turn and burn and go right back out. Um, and he came home after Labor Day and I was a wreck because I was so stressed out with trying to get her to turn. It was the middle of volleyball season. We were, you know, it was a busy fire season and they were supposed to leave the next day to go on another two week assignment. And I just like burst into tears and he was like, do you need me to stay? And I'm not very good at asking for help, but I knew that I wanted, I knew that if I 
didn't leave everything out on the court, like put everything out on the table. Like I would always wonder if, if she didn't turn, I would always wonder what if. And so we made the decision that he was going to stay back from a fire assignment um, or two, whoa, stay back from one fire. It would have been probably his last before she was born anyway. Stay back from that. And we did, I mean, like I said, like two to two and a half hours of exercises daily to try to get her to turn. I drove back and forth to Grant's Pass several more times. And then finally, we got to, I was really nervous about doing a version. But, you know, that was something that my OB in Medford had suggested as a possible thought. And my OB here was like, look, like we can't, like we can't offer you a VBAC here. I don't feel comfortable doing a version here because we, you know, like we're, we just don't have the resources. And so at my 36 week appointment, I said like, look, I, I don't know how comfortable I feel with a version. Like is, you know, is that going to be too much? And he, this is what I love about my OB. He like, leaned forward and said, I have never known anyone as committed to wanting a VBAC as you. He's like, I think you need to do everything. So, so we drove over to Medford and I like, you know, we took all of our bags just in case, you know, it like threw me into labor or we had, you know, something to stay. Right. And, uh, we went over and saw my OB there and he was like, okay, you know, we're going to go to the hospital, blah, blah, blah. He explains the whole procedure. They couldn't give me the uterine relaxing medication because I'd had like a little cardiac event earlier in pregnancy that was just like a one-off, but he just, he, he didn't feel comfortable giving that to me. So, and I, for anyone who's been through a version, like those are really uncomfortable. Like I, um, and I, I mean, it wasn't the worst pain I've ever felt, but I was just like, it's like being squished, like just very heavily squished by like a full grown man. And so he, like, you could just see it in his face. Like he gets, he gets a hold of my daughter and he turns her 90 degrees and then she slips back. And you can see that he's like, oh yeah, we totally got this. And he hooks his hands on again and turns to 90 degrees and she slips back. And so he's like, okay, third time's a charm. Third time's the last time. We're not going to do it anymore, but we're going to get her. And he gets a good grip on her and he gets her to 90 degrees and gets her a little bit farther. And I felt her jerk and her oh. heart rate and her heart rate dropped to 60 And we all just like held up our hands and we're like, nope, we're not doing it. Nope. And so, and I didn't know this guy very well. Like he came very highly recommended. Um, He was very Mm -hmm. friendly, but like he didn't, I mean, I'd only seen him a couple of times. And so he was just kind of like, okay, well, you need to drive back to Leafy and go schedule a C-section. We'll see you later. I have more patience to see. Oh, And I I was like, and I, and I really liked him, but you know, like I'm starting to get like, like a little sniffly and teary and, he was just like, I'm really sorry and left. And I think I cried the entire way home. Like, mm. and then I cried the whole next day. And I told my husband, I was like, I'm not calling like my local OB. I'm not calling him. <laughs> he was like, yeah, but you, I mean, the baby's got to come out at some point, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I did finally see my OB like the next week, um, which would have been, you know, close to 38 weeks. And I mean, the poor guy, like I just he like, I, I know he felt so bad. And so he was like, okay, what can we do? And I really wanted to go in the labor. And he, that was like, I mean, this OB is usually like, he puts up with a lot of my shenanigans, but that was a hard no. He's like, absolutely not. You're not going into labor. Like we're not going to like introduce bacteria and we don't need to. And then the other 
I had read a lot about a gentle cesarean, like where mom gets yeah. to pick baby up or gets baby gets to go straight to her chest. Mother assisted cesarean is yes. we're seeing it happen. It's I know. Coming. So I I'm very committed to on the next one, maybe making this happen. Because you know, I've got to work on this guy for a little bit, but that was a hard no on this one. Like one week was not enough time to prepare him. Yeah. But what we were able to do is we were able to, like, I had some good friends who were OB nurses. And so we were able to schedule it on a day that they could be there. He, our normal procedure for cesareans here is that, you know, baby's born and then they do the cord, um, usually cord clamping and then baby goes to the warmer, but he, my OB for delayed core clamping instead of just laying around my legs, like held her out, you know, like full arms extended, probably just like burning. She was a, she was a big kid. She was almost nine pounds. And um, so let me see her. And that's actually the picture that I sent to, to go along mm-hmm. with it. And um, then he took her over to the warmer and my friend, the nurse, like was right behind him and just swooped her up and brought her right to me. So there was no, like, it was, it was as close to that immediate skin to skin as we could have yeah. gotten. And I, yeah, it was, so it was, but but my struggle, like in the week between the version and her birth was that I just felt so broken. I really felt like my body had failed me and that there was, for whatever reason, I wasn't destined to ever feel a contraction or to get, you know, to even try to give birth vaginally. And so I worked with my therapist, like over that week and actually did some EMDR myself because I just really felt like what I had done was valuable. I did everything I could to give her a vaginal birth. And I, under no circumstances, wanted that feeling of brokenness to be passed to her even via osmosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that I worked really, really hard to like have that open, like brave feeling the day of her birth. And when she, and when she got put on my chest, I didn't want any of the, any of my insecurities to get passed on to her. Yeah. And so and I and it was difficult after her birth too. I really struggled with with feeling like I was like worthiness and like like I'd done enough. But you know, this far and actually the other thing too is I felt like I was going to have difficulty teaching childbirth education. Like I like how mm. who am I you know to teach and this, uh, this yeah. um, I get that. That's when I became a doula. I'd be, I, people would say like, oh, like so how were how was your vaginal birth or did you go on medicated? And I'm like. Uh, I had two C-sections. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, well, how do you feel qualified to support me through a vaginal birth then? And it's like, I totally do, you know, but yeah, yeah, it was really, really something hard to overcome, not have ever adding a vaginal birth, you know? Right. I I had one patient, she sticks out to me. She said, well, okay, what do contractions feel like? And I had to be like, well, people describe them as, you know, and like, So I wasn't, I wasn't able to tell her and that kind of tore me apart. But I, so since then, since she was born, I've taught two series of childbirth education. I've had a bunch of pregnant patients and I've helped Mm -hmm. patients labor, you know, and helped teach them positioning and counter pressure. And, and I realized like looking back, you know, I'm, I'm a pelvic floor PT and I threw my entire base of knowledge into my drive and journey to achieve a vaginal birth three times. And when that failed, I literally went with blind faith. And anything the internet or anyone suggested to me, I tried. I had prayed and I meditated and I positive affirmed myself every day and it still didn't happen, right? So in the end, I never had, I'd never had that chance to be able to like accurately tell her or from experience, tell my patients what a contraction felt like. 
And so since my first birth, I've really asked like, why, like, why not me? Like, why does this keep happening? And why can't I just, you know, like so many others on the podcast and so many others across the country, like, why can't I just will it into being? Mm -hmm. And, and so from these questions, I'm, I'm starting to believe that my story actually might begin at the end. And after my belly has been cut into for the final time, after the scar tissue knits back down and I can cough without pain, I realized that maybe my story isn't about the mechanism of birth at all, but what it birthed in me, which was the ability to see my own strength and give that to my mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. in a world where, where victimhood and fragility eat away at our resilience and our grit. And I thought not being able to labor to meet my children has broken me, but I, but I can't be broken. I can't be a broken mother to them. And so I want my kids to be strong and confident and powerful. And I can't teach them that if I can't model that. So I didn't get a vaginal delivery. I didn't get to experience labor pain and comfort measures and have my partner doing counter pressure and using a comb and, you know, and work together to bring my babies through my pelvis. You know, I didn't get to look adoringly at my husband as I pulled like baby onto my chest myself. But what I did was I made the choice to put my child's needs before my own desires. And I sacrificed my body in order to protect theirs. Yeah. So my labor, you know, my labor was really giving up my control and placing trust in my medical team and in God to bring my babies into the world. And so I'm not broken by my birth. I really feel like I've been remade into what a mother is supposed to be. Absolutely. I'm just crying over here. <laughs> um, that was beautiful. That was absolutely beautiful. And, you know, I, you know, I've talked about this before, but like the way we give birth doesn't define us. It right. doesn't say that we're a successful mom or giving birth vaginally or cesarean. It doesn't, right. doesn't mean that our children are going to be weak or struggle because they didn't come out vaginally. Right. 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 And yeah, like I love wow. I mean, I just love everything that you do. I mean, I'm seriously cry- crying here. That was just beautiful. And you are beautiful. Thank you. And every single one of these births are beautiful. And yeah. you really don't, I mean, you don't have to give birth vaginally. No. You don't, right? To have a beautiful experience and to be a powerful mom and and like you said, like, you know, I'm not coming here today to share that redemptive vaginal birth that I, that I so long, you know, wanted yep. so bad, you know, I longed for, but look at what you have done. Look at how yep. you've grown. Look at how strong you are, you know, and, you know, I believe that our children, you know, down the road, I mean, right now, when they're little, they probably don't really understand the magnitude of yep. what a cesarean birth or vaginal birth even looks like and what that means but i promise you that no matter what like these these babies are going to be grateful for you yeah you know and women of strength as you're listening know that it really doesn't birth does not define you the way you give birth does not define you and you are incredible i so like when it actually hit me like the last childbirth education series that we taught you know, so we go around and we talk about all the interventions for birth, you know, epidural or IV meds, you know, or cesarean or vaginal. And so often we have people who say, well, whatever baby needs. And it actually struck me this last class. I said, look, like, of course it's whatever baby needs. What you need is to cope 
Like you need, you need to know your strength and what will keep you strong because that is what takes you through this without trauma and takes you through feeling stronger and successful, no matter, no matter the mechanism, no matter the medications or the delivery method. Like it's just, it's about how you approach your birth and how you are going to continue to be strong, whether you're pushing them or whether you are being brave and being cut open. It's right. It's no matter what it is. No matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for, uh, thanks for that. That was amazing. <laughs> You're so welcome. Um, sorry for the sniffles, guys. <laughs> but that was beautiful. And congratulations. Thank you. Huge congratulations on all your growth and, and on your journey, even through pelvic floor. You know, like you are going to help so many people. And it, like pelvic floor, tell us a little bit more of what you've learned with the two, even like both ways, right? Vaginal and cesarean and how the yeah. pelvic floor actually is connected to both and how even cesarean mamas need guidance through pelvic floor. Yeah, absolutely. I So I actually see a lot of the same issues, um, post-vaginal and post-cesarean birth. So, yeah. you know, in vaginal birth, like usually what ha- like what often happens or what happens really not what often happens is you're, you're pushing a watermelon through a quarter sized hole. And so those muscles and your, and your joints are designed to stretch and there's lots of movements and things that can help, but you, you get this, it'd be like overstretching your hamstring. Like it just reactively spasms and tightens back down. And that's, that's even in the absence of tearing and things like that. And so like pelvic floor tension is really, really common after, after a vaginal birth, but also after a cesarean birth, now you've lost stability from your abdomen and, you know, like it's like, you can't even sneeze for eight weeks without like, (laughs) without feeling like you're going to burst open. And so my nose actually like, wasn't the better for like a year after my first son, because the, like the, it was just so fast. And so oftentimes I actually see a reactive spasm of the pelvic floor in women's with women with cesarean deliveries as well, because your pelvic floor is overcompensating for your lack of abdomen support. Uh So I actually treat those women a lot the same. And then of course we do like a lot more uh, like scar tissue work in cesarean. And then it's, and then um, it's a lot more like, like abdominal training um, earlier on for women with vaginal delivery. But yeah. And I mean, it's, it's almost identical. You know, the, the initial recommendations are a little bit different, but by six weeks out, I'm treating, I'm treating Almost women the same. the same. And what I actually love, you know, so many people, I wanted to mention this about rural hospitals, people get scared to deliver in rural hospitals. But what's beautiful about our situation is your OB will also likely be the one to come deliver you and will also see you for the three day wait and color check and the two week visit and the four week visit and the eight week visit. So here we don't, and they'll see you at the six week visit for you too. So like, so you, we have so much better follow-up for mom and baby here than, than I got in a you know big fancy hospital in the city. And so I think we actually see, like, I see people way sooner than I would see them in the city. Like I'm seeing people easily four and six weeks out where in the city, it might be six or eight months. So right. well, and that, yeah, like, there's so many of us that it's six weeks out. That's when we're going in for our right. first visit. And they're right. like, oh, what birth control do you want? You know, like that's <laughs> right. what they, they're asking, right? And right. we've gone weeks and weeks and weeks with the pelvic pressure and right. that that bolt or the leaking or the, you know, disconnect when we right. could have been doing some things. Because, you know, 
maybe two weeks out, we're not doing, like you said, the exact same things, but like there are things that we can do even through breath with our scar, right? Mobilization for after cesarean and all these things that we can do. So if you are like the many of us who don't get seen as you know you have which is like the way it should be in my opinion um i think that we should be seeing people three days out and you know two weeks out and all these things because that's when so many things are not caught yeah but um know that it's okay you can still turn to a pelvic floor specialist and therapist even while you're waiting right yeah and I, so I've started a program at our hospital where I actually try to catch C-section moms in-house. So I'll mm-hmm. give them like laying on your stomach and like early abdominal work and how to get out of bed. I mean, like nobody teaches you how to get out of bed after a cesarean yeah. and you can really <laughs> screw up your scar tissue yeah. by straining on it too much or just be in a lot of pain for a long time. But yeah, and the other beautiful, the other really great thing about PT and insurance companies now is you actually don't often have to wait for your doc to refer you. So if you are two weeks out and you are, and you are still leaking or you have a lot of pain, you mm-hmm. don't have to wait to see your doc. You can actually just call a P, a pelvic floor PT, and you, a lot of insurances right. will let you self refer. So it's pretty awesome, right? It is awesome. And I just, I think that, I mean, like you're saying, like, we just don't talk about pelvic floor after cesarean very much because we just don't think about, we, we haven't pushed a baby out of our vagina. So we probably are okay. But the right. disconnect with the abs, I mean, we, we really, cesarean birth is really quite intense right. Um, internally. Right. And so, right. yeah, don't hesitate, go out. Can you tell everyone where to follow you? Yeah. Um, so I have a, like where I talk more most about like um, pelvic floor and PT stuff is actually called at team Griffith 2011 on Instagram. Okay. Um, and if you're interested in finding a pelvic floor PT near you, um, if you go to the section on pelvic health, uh, just Google that in the internet and there's, then there's actually a PT locator and that's mm-hmm. how you'll be able to find someone close to you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Do you suggest people do it even before birth? I know you did mm-hmm. with yours, but like as a PT, you know, a pelvic floor therapist, do you suggest people go before? I, especially if you don't have a program in your hospital where, where the PT tries to snag you um, before you leave, I would, I would think it'd be helpful. I do what I call like a labor and delivery biomechanics visit. So I'll have people come in and we'll talk about positioning and counter pressure. Mm-hmm. And then I almost always give them like, like vaginal delivery and cesarean, yeah. like the pre, the, the, and the early stage exercises. Um, awesome. so that would be something that a PT would be able to, would be able to tell you is just like, what are the very first things you should start doing? Like when to start doing Kegels or, you know, how to yeah. like, how to get back a lot of times. It's just like teaching you how to diaphragmatically breathe. Cause that'll help to coordinate your pelvic floor too, like the right. yoga breath. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving me a good cry today. (laughs) You're so welcome. And educating us on pelvic floor. Seriously, it was beautiful. And congratulations to all three of your babies. Thank you so much. Yep. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas, and more, head over to thevbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC Link.